I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 54. Today in the show, we're joined by author and host of Meat Eater TV, Stephen Rinella, and we're talking conservation. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. And as you might imagine, I'm pretty darn excited for today's episode as we're joined by Stephen Rinella. Yes, Stephen Rinella's on the show today, guys. Pretty excited about it. But before we get to that, I have another exciting announcement I wanted to share with you. And you know, as you all know, the Wired Hunt podcast is free to download and listen to. And I do everything I can to make sure that the podcast provides a huge amount of value to you, the listener. But that said, it unfortunately is not free to actually create this podcast and run the Wired Hunt website. And so with that being the case, over the past few years, I've depended on a few like-minded companies that I trust to help keep Wired Hunt funded and operational. Today, though, I'm excited that our longest-time partner, Sick Gear, has decided to step up in an extra special way and has made an investment specifically in this podcast and you guys that will ensure that we can keep producing awesome free episodes for you all for a long, long time. That said, as part of that, on each episode moving forward, we'll be featuring a short advertisement from Sitka. But advertisement really is a bad word for what we're going to be doing, as these super short pieces will simply be stories from me, interviews with other hunters, or behind-the-scenes insights from Sitka Gear employees. In short, this is going to be different than almost all ads you ever see on TV or hear on the radio. These are going to be fun, they're going to be short, and they're going to be informative. And today I want to kick that off actually with the story of how I was introduced to Sick of Gear. This all started actually uh, back when I was just getting started with Wired to Hunt in the fall of 2009, I believe. And I had, you know, at that time I was working for a tech company out in San Francisco. I was stuck in a little corporate apartment and I spent a lot of time online looking at new hunting gear and new anything hunting related, really. And I caught wind of a new hunting clothing company that was bringing high tech mountaineering fabrics and processes to the hunting market. And they also had a really cool new digital camo pattern. And of course, as you know, that was Sitka Gear. I was super intrigued, and over the coming weeks and months, I did a ton of digging around, did a lot of reading, a lot of researching, and finally I decided that I, I wanted to give this stuff a try. At the same time, though, I reached out to a new kind of digital acquaintance of mine, someone I met through Facebook, I think, and this person happened to have connections at Sika, and I asked him if he knew of any way I could get a hold of someone at the company, and he ended up passing along the email address for Jonathan Hart, who is the founder of Sika Gear. That was kind of incredible right off the bat, just the fact that I got the email address for the founder of this company. But, you know, on top of that, I figured, you know, being a snot-nosed 21-year-old kid at the time writing this brand new blog, I figured reaching out to the founder of a company like that was a long shot. Uh, But I guess I was crazy enough to believe in that long shot because I did it anyway. And unbelievably, I got a response back from him. And not only that, but 
Jonathan, the founder, he actually offered to hop on the phone with me. I was pretty damn floored, as you might expect. And shortly after that, I got on the phone and actually got to talk with Jonathan for probably well over 30 minutes. He told me really all about Sitka, and then he was actually kind enough to listen to me talk about Wired to Hunt and all my dreams and aspirations for the blog. He asked me questions, he challenged me on my plans, and he even offered me some pretty helpful advice. And at the time, I really couldn't believe the time he was giving me. But looking back now, it doesn't surprise me one bit. As several years later, Sika Gear was the first company to get on board with Wired Hunt and help make this whole thing possible. And they've continued to support the Wired Hunt Nation ever since. I tell you all this because I think this whole interaction with Jonathan and the company since, it's really indicative of the company that Sika is and the people that work there. And it's a big reason why I love working with them. You know, they are a bunch of guys and girls that are all about challenging the norms and supporting innovation, whether that be in the form of a new deer hunting blog or podcast, or creating really expectation-crushing new hunting gear. And that's why I'm so pumped for Sika Gear to be partnering with us on the Wired to Hunt podcast. Now, all that said, moving forward, we'll have a short weekly segment from Sika and occasional messages from other partners too, but I promise they're, they're going to be unobtrusive, helpful, and hopefully really interesting. So, I appreciate you hearing me out on all this and for supporting the companies that support Wired to Hunt. Now though, it's time to get to the real matter at hand. And that's our interview today with Stephen Rinella. And this is a podcast I've been wanting to make for quite some time, and I'm just stoked that we're finally actually making it happen. But if you don't know why I'm stoked, I have to wonder where you've been the last few years. Stephen Rinella is, in my opinion, probably the best representative we have of the hunting community and one of the finest examples for all of us hunters to look to in regards to how we communicate about hunting. He's a writer, an author, and the host of the Mediator TV show and the Mediator podcast most recently, and all of which you really should go check out if you haven't already. But I first discovered Steve through his book American Buffalo sometime back in college it must have been. And at that time, I was just really impressed by the story of Stephen's hunt for an American bison and the history he shared of this incredible animal and the, the whole adventure he had. I was really impressed, I guess, at that point. But then years later, when I saw this Ronella guy had a TV show coming out on the Travel Channel, of all places, I knew I had to check it out. And that show, The Wild Within, showcased Steve's ability to talk about hunting to a non-hunting audience. And that's something that I hadn't seen too often. And really ever since, whether it be in his books, on his current show Meat Eater, or appearances on non-hunting podcasts like the Joe Rogan Experience, or you know articles he's written for non-hunting magazines like Outside, I've just been consistently, I guess impressed is the only word I can come up with, with Steve and his ability to communicate about hunting and conservation, which in our world today with something like, I think it's 95% or somewhere around there of the U.S. population doesn't have any experience with hunting, having that type of skill set and understanding is increasingly important to have. And that is why I'm so excited that we finally got to interview Stephen on the podcast. You know, in my opinion, we all can learn a thing or two from this guy. And today, I think we will. Now, specifically, today I want to chat with Stephen about the importance of conservation and our responsibility as hunters to be active conservationists. But as you might expect, we ended up discussing that and a whole lot more. But without further ado, and before I bore you all probably half to death, I think we should just get Stephen on the phone. So let's do it. All right, on the phone with us now is Stephen Ranella. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, this is uh this is something that a lot of our listeners have been wanting for a while. They've asked to have you on the show and they wanted to hear from you, so I'm excited that we can finally do that. And uh, you know, as I mentioned to you before, I'm a big fan of your work, both the media your TV show and your books. Um, but given that you're doing so many different things, you have a podcast, a show, you know, articles, all that stuff, you know, I'm kinda curious because I've faced the same challenge myself. You know, when you're out at like a dinner party or something maybe with your wife's friends, and someone asks you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? I used to, when I could get away with it, I would sometimes, well, let me back up and say that depending on who I'm talking to, okay? 
Right. I used to say, if I didn't feel like having a big conversation about it with someone, I would say I was a tree surgeon. So, like, during graduate school, I worked as a tree surgeon, you know, doing tree climbing, like I was a climber, you know. So if I, was, if I didn't really, if I didn't feel like having a yak, a big old chat about it, I'd say that. And then people tend to not ask that many questions, you know. It's like pretty self-explanatory. But now what I say, I really don't feel like getting into it. I'll say that, um, I'll be like, I'm an outdoor writer and I do a lot of work in television. And, and that sometimes will, uh, will get me out of the conversation if I don't feel like really getting into a ton of detail. Mm-hmm. But if it's someone, you know, if, I, if it's someone I enjoy talking to, yeah, I'll lay the whole thing out for them. Um, but oftentimes you get asked that question almost like a formality, you know, um, where people are like, Oh, what do you do? You know, it's like, this isn't a real conversation. We're having a fake conversation right now. Yeah. So I'll give you like a fake answer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like small, like the older I get, the less I can, I just, the older I get, the less I can handle small talk. You know what I mean? <laughs> Becoming senile already. <laughs> it's just like, I just like, it just, yeah. yeah. It's it just not like when I take my kid down to preschool, you know, and you have to be like the small talky with thing with the parents as you're dropping it off. I'm just like, I just don't want, I just can't anymore. I don't know why I'm just too old. <laughs> yeah. I can definitely relate to that. Now, if I, if I understand correctly, you, you used to live in New York, right? Um, yeah. I live, yeah. I lived all over, man. But yeah, most yeah, I just moved to Seattle from New York. So see, I work on, like I work on the road or from home, you know? Um, so it doesn't, it, it's not that vital to me where I live. I spend a lot of time traveling. Um, and I kind of, you know, I, I sort of like for our living situation, we kind of chase my wife's work. You know, my wife works for a company and, and um, they moved her around and, um, and you know, that affords a pretty nice lifestyle for, you know, it's good for her to be happy because I'm gone a lot, you know. Yeah. So it's like, it's hard for me to say like, oh yeah, let's move back to Montana and then I'll be gone all the time anyway, you know. Right. <laughs> so it, it's helpful to, you know, it's helpful for, you know, to have everybody close to something. If I were you, where I don't travel so much, I think it'll probably change. But for now, I'm gone enough where um, we need to live somewhere where the, you know where our family's comfortable and can kind of manage for themselves when I'm out of town. You know? Yeah. Now, when you did live in New York, imagine hanging out in Manhattan or Brooklyn or wherever. What What were those conversations like when you said you're an outdoor writer? If they pushed you and you talked about you hunting all over the place, did you get a lot of people that gave you you know negative feedback, or was it kind Dude, of just never, like never, never, ever, never? Really? Never. No. There's such a misconception about that stuff. It's like, and I had it too. No. People in New York were fascinated, man. Fascinated. And you, you I saw wild game dinners in New York, and people would just bust the door down to come do it. <laughs> people in New York, it's like, there's this sort of, there's this sort of like erroneous idea that, that like people in the city are just going to be knee-jerk. They have, they don't even know enough to be mad about it. Like, they really have no idea. Just, like, how do you have no idea about their life? Like, if I came to you and said, like, what are your feelings, you know, about, like, the subway system? I don't mean to trivialize it. Let's say, what are your feelings about the subway system? It's like, I don't know. They don't know. They don't hunt. They're, they're yeah. pleasantly surprised to hear there's such thing as hunting seasons, you know? <laughs> yeah. They had no idea. They was like, oh, I thought you just go out and shoot stuff. I'm like, no, man, it's not like that at all. It's, like, very well managed, you know? It's managed on the state level by agencies who are sort of under a, not sort of, we're under a legal mandate to mandate these species for longevity as a renewable resource. It's strictly regulated. They tell you when you can hunt something like a squirrel, how many you're allowed a day. They're like, I can't believe this. That's amazing. I want to eat a squirrel. <laughs> and the other thing is, people in cities like, this is generalization, right? The sort of my, like people my age group in cities that I happen to know through publishing or through, through entertainment and other industries were just excited about eating food because they, 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 they're part of the restaurant culture, you know? And if someone's already eaten, you know, a dozen kind of meat, kinds of meat through restaurants, sushi restaurants and all that kind of stuff, they've already eaten a dozen kind of meat to eat one more and to make it 13 isn't a big deal to them. Now, this is another generalization, but you take rural people, on the other hand, and rural people, I think, in general, are going to be are, are less interested in eating wild game. There's no mystique, you know, because many of them have already had it. Like, they've had deer. They prefer beef. They've eaten their whole life. They've eaten beef, pork, and chicken. Mm-hmm. To add one or two more things to that list is a big leap. It's a 25% increase, you know? 
it just isn't like, it's just not what you'd think it's like. And the thing that surprised me too about urban stuff is I have in my house, I have a lot of uh, hides and, and skulls, okay? Hunting trophies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, animals that I hunted, the ones that get a prominent place in my home are, are hunts where I'm real proud of the hunt. Um, I love the animal. It's like a great memory, you know? Like I give pretty strong billing to my doll sheep skulls that were killed on self-guided hunts with my brothers, you know? Yeah. So I look at that and I'm like, man, that's like everything, right? That's the, the highlight of my hunting life right there. It's like that skull stands for so much. The mountains, the experience, just being exhausted, being uncomfortable, setting a goal, fulfilling the goal, right? I look at the skull and I see all that. Other people come in to your house, they look at the skull and they don't see anything. It doesn't, it doesn't like speak to them. But you serve them up some like doll sheep ribs, dude, and they want to go, you know, because <laughs> people are practical people, you know, it's like, it's so exciting to them. So I just never encountered that kind of stuff. And I just had to, you know, there's, I hate terms like conservative and liberal because anyone that I prefer to hang out with generally isn't so easily summed up. Right. You know, I'm not, I'm all over the place on, on issues. So, but anyways, See, I got a friend who lives in like a in, a in a famously liberal town of Madison, Wisconsin. Okay, it, he's not easy, he's not an easily summed up guy, right? He's an issue by issue guy. He doesn't, you know, live according to like a set of rules that someone told me he's supposed to live according to. And I was asking the same thing because he grew up on a dairy farm outside of Madison. Now lives in Madison, big hunter. And I said, you ever catch a lot of slack for being a hunter? He sat there and thought for a long time. He's like, you know what? I can't think of one time. Wow. That I have ever had, like, a, have ever been, like, publicly confronted. Now, the Internet's a whole other thing, you know. People come ask me online a little bit, but never in person. The one time I actually had, like, a showdown with a guy, was a guy that came to a book signing I did, and the guy at the end, during the question period, raised his hand and asked a very civilized question. So, no, it's like I, I was always, like, pleasantly surprised. And I took a lot of urbanites on their first hunting trips, man. Some of them I'm kind of proud of, you know. I mean, I liked, none of them became hunters, but they all were real glad they did it. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. 
AuraFrames.com, promo code Meat Eater. Well, you wouldn't call consider Rogan to be a hunter now? Yeah, I'd say he's a hunter now. Yeah. All right, there's one. Yeah. Well, no, I was thinking, I was thinking about because he's not. I was thinking about New York. Sorry, but uh, yeah. All right, so in LA, I have. There you go. <laughs> that's awesome. No, I think that's great being able to see that, being able to introduce people to that, and you know, I, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised to hear that you had a similar situation. You know, I had a my previous day job for a while. I lived in San Francisco, which you know, going into that, I assumed was going to be very. You know, the people I'd be working with would be very anti hunting and what I did, but same thing like you said everyone was just fascinated they didn't know anything and so like you said when you start explaining you know why we do what we do and how we do it they're they're pleasantly surprised by too so i think people have we're talking in such gross generalities we should be shot but let's just keep (laughs) let's just keep doing it for a minute right i think that um people have this sort of thing where if you let's say you went up to your average let's say you just went up to like a hundred people in the city big big city new york la and and um you gave him like a, a questionnaire and it had one question on it and it said like is hunting for wild animals good or bad right is killing wild animals good or bad they're gonna you're gonna have the vast majority you're gonna click the no box if you put it to them like that mm-hmm. now go and have an actual conversation give them a situation where you have, they have an actual conversation with an actual hunter Okay. And then you give them the questionnaire says, is what this guy just told you about good or bad? They're going to click good because it's like they have a, this sort of like vague negative idea about it. Cause they just have no idea. And again, not to their fault, but why should they have an idea about it? You know? Yeah. So it's not that they're like willfully ignorant. It's like you're willfully ignorant of all kinds of things having to do with life in other places, you know? Um, I'm sure that where you live, there's issues that I don't know about. So if someone's born and raised in an urban environment and you want to act like something's wrong with them because they're not, they're not like understand hunting yet. I think it's just like really, it's really unfair to have that perspective that someone's supposed to somehow be, you know, a student of wildlife management without having it be something that impacts their life at all. You know, and really like this kind of leads to another thing that, that I spend a lot of time talking about. I, I got an older brother, and he whenever people talk about hunter recruitment, he just says he can't stand it. He's like, "Why would you want to increase competition, dude? Like, <laughs> you think like you're you're going to be happy? You're not going to be happy until everywhere you go, there's some other guy there hunting." And and in some way, I really see where he's coming from. But what I think about all the time when we're talking about urban stuff and city folks, what I think all the time is, what is their impression? We're living in a country now where you know 95 percent of Americans don't hunt. And oftentimes we'll find that issues surrounding our hunting rights and habitat and other things come down to voting majorities, mm-hmm. you know? So 95% of Americans don't hunt, but we decide things in general on this sort of 50-50 split. You can tip the scale to 51-49, you win. So all these people that don't hunt, when they sit around and think about hunting, are they thinking like, yeah, man, that's a legitimate constructive activity. Or do they think that's a bullshit activity? You know? And that right there is a battle, in my mind. One of them. Because people come in, I think people that vote on some of these referendums to ban certain kind of hunting practices and stuff, honestly, I think they have no idea. I think they walk in and they're like stand there and they vote for the president, they vote for the congressman and senator, they kind of like pay a little bit of attention to like judge things. And then they get to this referendum, they're kind of like, what's this now? Hunting bears, no way, click. Yeah, I mean, I honestly think that's probably how it goes. You know, and if those people had met some hunters and hung out with them and ate dinner with them, they might read that and be like, "Oh, they shouldn't mess with those guys." I'm simplifying it, but that's that's part of what I see as the battle. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent agree. It's it's just... there's an internal battle too. There's like an, there's an external battle and there's an internal battle that we will probably talk about. And the internal battle is when you're talking to other hunters. You know. And you got to ask, like, okay, you like the hunt. Now, what does that mean for you? Where does the pleasure end and the work begin on that front? You know, and, and that's a whole other conversation. It's, it's different. So to, to work in sort of like the media of hunting, I think you're always aware of those two conversations, outside, inside. Very true. It's, uh, 
it's something that I think about a lot too in that same dilemma like you said the you know sure from some standpoint from a selfish standpoint we might like to have more land to ourselves and more animals to ourselves but like you said I think the greater good really is having people that better understand what we're doing and maybe someone want to give it a try because when it comes right down to it whether we like it or not hunting is a privilege right now you know and if people don't vote in favor of what we are privileged to do at this time we could lose that someday so it's important. yeah if, if you're talking about if you're talking about perfect scenarios right a perfect scenario would be that i was the only guy that hunted however 100 <laughs> percent of americans were ardent conservationists and ardent supporters of my right as a hunter and the first thing they thought of every day is we need to make steve's hunting world better he needs more habitat more animals we need cleaner water, cleaner air for Steve, right? But it's probably not going to happen. It would be nice. <laughs> it's unrealistic. <laughs> when I was having this conversation, I was having this conversation that I have it often with my brother. And he has very valid points. I, I almost feel like, you know, you should call him and get, get his side of it. Yeah. So it's funny because we're talking to him and he just got done hunting turkey. And he, just got, he just got done doing a combo turkey hunting trip, smallmouth walleye trip. Nice. Well, and I said to him, we're talking about this, and he's talking about, yeah, why he wants so much competition, and you're going to make too much competition. And I was like, hey, dude, who put the turkeys that you just hunted on the ground? They're not native where you're at. You know? Well, you know, National Turkey Federation. <laughs> it's like, and I know that those smallmouth bass and walleye aren't native where you're at. You know? And those came from Fish and Game, who is a licensed, funded agency. So don't tell me that you're going to go it alone. You know? You're not going to say, because you'd have had no trip, dude. You know? <laughs> Without the, without without the kind of stuff we're talking about, you know, it's complicated. Like everything with wildlife, it's just as endlessly complicated. Very true. So so on this topic of, uh, you know, the the human element of conservation, you know, what I really want to dive into with you today was was about this idea of the hunter conservationist, right? The Lots of times we often talk about hunting as conservation, and the original conservationists in many cases were hunters. Um, but today, in today's world, what do you think it means to be a hunter conservationist, and what what responsibility do you think comes with that? Well, I'll, I'll address that, but I want to back up a minute. Yeah, I think that historically there's a temptation to cherry pick, you know, and be like, yeah, like hunter, the hunter conservation concept is is old, you know. I recently reread all the Leopold Sand County Almanac and I was kinda of blown away by some of the ideas that, that guy was having in the in the forties. Mm-hmm. Which are very fresh right now. It was almost like the guy was looking into a crystal ball. It was amazing some of the concepts and ideas he was struggling with at the same time. Yeah, great book. But a lot of what he was responding to you know, the decimation of American waterfowl and some other things. And, and, the, and he touches on the eradication of the buffalo off the Great Plains. Was those things were committed by hunters. You know, we now have to have like, oh, no, they weren't really hunters because they were market hunters. But like, they were dudes like shooting guns, right? They're guys shooting guns. If I had been born back then, I would have been one of those guys. I have no doubt in my mind. <laughs> if you, if I would have been born, if I would have like, been born in 1850 as a 22-year-old, I would have been down on the Southern Plains shooting buffalo and selling hides. Mm-hmm. And if I wasn't, I'd have been bummed that I wasn't there, <laughs> right? Because it's like, that's what was going on at the time. It was like the fun, it was like where it was at. You can't expect people to just have, to be like Leopold and have this crystal ball where they can see the, the implications of their actions. And just to keep touching that for a minute, like, once they shot all the buffalo, so they killed the buffalo off the southern plains, and they went and hunted the northern plains. And the last big herd left in the U.S. was sort of had this nexus of around Mile City, Montana. When they shot all those in the winter of 1881, 1882, they had no idea what they'd done. And, and, and later, it was said that a lot of the guys were still hanging around Mile City, knowing that there must be a ton more buffalo that would eventually come down out of Canada. <laughs> having no idea that they'd actually shot them all, you know? So when I think that, like, hunters committed all kinds of atrocities, I don't mean they set out and said, like, hey, Joe, let's go out west and, and uh, extirpate a species from the vast majority of its terrain, 
you know, they're just doing what they were doing at the time. But I don't want to act like, I, don't, I think it's a little bit unfair to act like hunters and hunting has always been this great pot, like this great force for good. Because it's always been where some people were not acting with restraint and were not exercising good judgment. Or we're just blind to the future, you know? And some people were visionaries. Teddy Roosevelt, a visionary conservationist. Aldo Leopold, visionary conservationist. Seager Olson, visionary conservationist. William T. Hornaday, visionary conservationist. Right? Guys that just got it, you know? Hunter conservationists. And I, I would say that that same struggle still goes on today. No one right now is legally committing any kind of atrocity even remotely comparable to the to the eradication of the you know the American buffalo. But I think that there are people out there who are operating on a take it while you can get it mindset. And I'm not even like so much blaming them. It could be the same things, like lack of education from your father, your, your grandfather about sort of the history of wildlife in America. It could be just that you just weren't raised in a situation where you really asked to contemplate the future, you know? And then we still today have people who are saying like, Hey man, let's step back and take a big look at what's going on. I like to hunt turkeys. Okay. I like turkeys. What is it that allows turkeys to be on the landscape? Who is it that allows turkeys to be on the landscape? And you can step back and get a wider and wider and wider picture until you've gotten to the point where you're looking. And when you see a turkey, you see everything that goes into that bird. You admire the turkey. You admire the sky that produces the rain that waters the plants that the turkey eats. Like that sort of look, you know, holistic look at your hunting life and resources and conservation leads to like some introspection. And you're going, you know what? I want to make it so it's better. Than, than the way I found it, you know? This is especially true for me now that I have a young kid because I don't want to be in a situation where I'm telling my four-year-old, oh, man, you should have seen it, you know? You should have seen it. It was amazing. Like, I'd rather be like, yeah, man, let's go check it out. It's amazing, yeah. you know? Yeah. And the thing about, like, our dads, like, my dad, had, my dad was born in 1924. I definitely... Thanks to the American Conservation Movement, I hunted and am hunting a much better landscape than my dad was hunting when he started out. No doubt. No doubt. There's a lot of risks right now, but just on the, just when, if you look at just like some landmark species, like some pinnacle game species, it's a, you know in some ways you could say we're living in the good old days right now, comparable to the 30s. And that's all to thank for you. That's all to thank. By, that's to thank for hunter conservationists. Yeah. In particular, organizations that are funded and backed by hunter conservationists. So what does that mean for the average hunter today then? If, if, if someone's listening, right, and you're, is resonating with some of the things you're saying about looking at that larger ecosystem picture and how things impact what we're able to do now, you know, what, are, what can the average hunter do today or tomorrow to become a better a better hunter conservationist to actually start working towards some of these greater good things. Is there any actionable steps that can be taken or do you just need to become more aware? No, I, th I think that awareness leads to actionable stuff, but I think a great thing, if you just feel overwhelmed, right? Do you know, you love, you know that every year you and your buddies like to go out west and you do an elk hunt. Okay. And it might seem great. You guys are seeing tons of elk, whatever. It takes you saying like, okay, it's good now. Let's keep it good. Who's working to keep it good? In the case of elk, I think you wouldn't have to look very far and you're going to find the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Mm -hmm. It's a good organization. Follow their lead. You know, you're not going to like make this stuff up on your own. There's a lot, but I, I shouldn't say that because there's a lot of people that single-handedly do great work. I met a guy one time that was just at a big chunk of property in Iowa. He was a bluebird enthusiast. You know, bluebirds are almost wiped off the face of the earth, wiped off, you know, the eastern bluebird is almost eradicated. A variety of causes um but this guy like was a bluebird he ran a bluebird nesting program on a big farm in iowa so he was single-handedly out there like making bluebird habitat yeah, he loved bluebirds 
there are people that do that all the time on their own land. I got a friend in Wisconsin, you know, this guy hang out all the time, Doug Barron, loves deer, works on his place for deer. He's got hundreds of acres of land. But, you know, you, you might not have that, you might not be able to exercise that kind of immediate control if you don't own all this land. And if that's the case, follow the lead of other people. I'm involved with a bunch of conservation groups in some way or another. You know, I belong to Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Um, I try to do stuff in support of and work with National Wild Turkey Federation. I'm a public lands advocate. I believe in uh, public trust wildlife, public trust lands. For that reason, I stay involved with backcountry hunters and anglers. You know, I, I, I think of the things that I care about and the things that I would like to see continue. Not just that I'd like to remedy, and there's plenty of those. There's wrongs that need to be fixed. There's wrongs that need to be righted. But there's also stuff that's good right now. It's good. Let's keep it good. Who wants to keep it good? Who wants to make it better? And then throw your support behind those groups. The other thing that we're constantly faced with, this is something I touched on earlier, or something that I alluded to earlier when I was talking about Aldo Leopold. Aldo Leopold was talking about in the 40s. He was talking about that the, the, the U.S. has become like a hypochondriac about economic issues, where we're, we're so fixated on the idea of our economic health that we're incapable of being healthy, you know? And what I'm getting to there is I think that there's some issues, there's some wildlife and conservation issues where you're just going to have to accept the fact that it's inconvenient. You know, having a healthy environment, having strong wildlife habitat, having good hunting and fishing opportunities is going to at some point in time come at a cost, at an economic cost, potentially, where you might have to sacrifice some immediate thing with like jobs right now or some immediate things like construction money right now in exchange for the long-term goal of having a healthy environment, you know? Um, and that's difficult for people to do. People look at elk reintroductions and, the, and they're worried, you know, who's worried about elk reintroductions is car insurance companies. They don't want to pay all those premiums off for people smacking the giant elk out on the road. Right. Yeah. It's like an inconvenience thing. Buffalo outside of the, in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem coming outside of Yellowstone National Park. It's inconvenient. They smash your fences. They eat grass. They could go to cattle. It's just like at some point in time, you're always faced with the idea that, that it, a little bit of it is going to be inconvenient. And people go through a lot of these mental gymnastics, I think, of uh, talking about, you know, the, the economic impact of hunting and fishing. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. I, I'd love to hear all those figures, and I, and I support that kind of research. But you know what? If you told me that, that having clean air and water – cost money, I would still think it's a good idea. Steven makes a great point here, and I'm curious to hear more, but first, we need to take another quick second to thank one of our partners for their support of this episode of the podcast, and that is Huntera Maps. You've probably seen their logo on our site, but maybe you still don't know what they do. Well, Huntera Maps is a company that creates super high-end custom physical maps, like the kind that you hold in your hand, that incorporate aerial imagery with terrain data that actually allows you to see the structure and ups and downs and stuff of the terrain on your aerial image. The maps are just gorgeous, and they're really high-quality paper if you get a a field map printed out, and you can actually get these in several different sizes, Um, a small field map that's easy to take out with you when you're hunting or in much larger versions that maybe you want to put on your wallet hunting camp. And I personally so far have enjoyed using my field map the most, and that's kind of surprising to me because when I first began testing these maps last year, I wasn't sure how much I'd actually use a physical map instead of the maps on my phone. That's what I always used before. But over the last season, I found it was actually a lot. I would use those quite a bit more than I expected. And that's because, you know, with the extra terrain features on those maps, it allows you to see things um, in, a, in a new way that's different from just Google Maps. But then also, I didn't have to worry about, you know, not having good service or accidentally tapping the phone screen and screwing everything up. Um, because of those reasons, I ended up using my Huntera map, you know, really all the time when I was prepping to go hunt my Ohio property before hunt, me and my buddy who uh, shares that lease with me, we'd look at it and point out different things and plan what stands we wanted to hunt. Um, and it helped us out. So that said, if you're intrigued and want to try out a map from Huntera yourself, head over to Huntera.com. That's Huntera, H-U-N-T-E-R-R-A.com, and enter the promo code WIRED to get 10% off your order. That's W-I-R-E-D to get 10% off. Now, back to this awesome interview with Mr. Stephen Ranella. 
Now, on that topic, then, you know, I've, I've heard the concern about the fa- given the fact that everything comes down to, for some people, the financial ramifications of it. Like you just said, people now are trying to find the economic impact of hunting or the economic good that recreational tourism in so-and-so wilderness area will bring to the economy. And so they justify having that habitat preserved because of that, something like that. Um, yeah, it, the, yeah. The risk of that, though. Uh, that I've, you know, I've, on this conversation I've heard is that if you start putting a financial number behind all these different conservation projects or preservations or whatever, whatever it might be, then do you risk that sometimes when the money isn't, you know, justifiable to the cost, then people will say, okay, we shouldn't conserve this because, you know, the, the finances aren't there. And then you start getting the alternate view of that. Do we, is that something that's, is that a real risk? Oh yeah, for sure. Like, let's say you just take a hillside, you got a mountainside. And for any kind of thing, you got a state fishing game area or something. You go, oh, yeah, because it's going to bring X and X money because you're going to have people buying hunting licenses. And some guys are going to go like, oh, you, you want to talk about some money. Let me run the figures for you about after I put a golf course in a resort on that chunk of ground. Right. So then you step back and go like, oh, yeah, clearly you win, man. Go ahead. You make more money that way. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's nice to make the case. I believe in making the case. I think it's important. It's important to politicians who actually just, like, you know, they live in a numbers world oftentimes. I mean, some do. Some live in a, a serial world I'll never understand. But some of them are numbers <laughs> people, you know. And, um, and, yeah, it's helpful to make the case. But, yeah, that, that's one thing I'm afraid of is being, oh, so it's a, it's a financial game now? Like, I have to justify I have to justify healthy, productive land. I have to justify ecology on immediate financial return, you know, I worry about that a little bit. And in some ways I, I kind of go like, it's bigger than money. It's bigger than money. Yeah. But I get, I get the need for it. I understand the need for it. Um, but yeah, I do want to be like, I always want to include a caveat where it would say like, there's money here, you know, healthy land is valuable financially. It's valuable in dollars, but even besides that, it's more important than that. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being meat eater. Auraframes.com, promo code meat eater. You know. And that's the challenge is how do we communicate that to the people that aren't out there actually, you know, 
enjoying time in these places or with these animals because like like we've talked about there's a lot of people in urban settings that that never actually experience that other than watching on tv yeah yeah you got to figure out whatever it is you know are you familiar with i'm sure you are the term of like charismatic megafauna how people that have never seen a wolf will become like ardent wolf advocates and, and 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 feel like they're like like you know armchair wolf biologists um yeah if you could take that and and have like a charismatic landscapes that were outside of the national park system, you'd be doing something very good. Yeah. You know, but there's like three or four places that people in the public's mind are like inviolable. And it's because it has name brand recognition, Yosemite, Yellowstone, but you know, you're not going to, people are going to hang on to those. But I think people need to realize the broader scale of the American treasure. I've never done this empirically empirically. Like I've never like actually, look at it in a, in, a, in a strict scientific way. But I feel like if you look at the U.S., how many people we have living here? So population density. You look at our GNP, you know, and just like the, technolo- the, uh, the technological advances we have here and stuff. There's no way that any other country has, is where we're at in those things, is where we're at with, population density is where we're at with economy that has the treasures we have, the ecological treasures that we have, you know, there's no way we've done a fantastic job of, of blending the, of blending the two things of having it all, yeah. you know? Um, so I don't want to say like, I don't want to say it's all bad, but there's, we've done a lot of great stuff. But yeah, I worry all the time. And there's more good stuff we could be doing, I think. Yeah. There's more good stuff we could be doing if again, if we just got comfortable with the idea that some of this stuff is gonna be inconvenient. Yeah. You know? So what are the conservation or habitat issues or uh, places at risk that keep you up at night right now? Some of the things that keep me up at night right now in an immediate sense is this idea floating around, I'm sure you heard about it, where some people are getting like political traction by questioning the legitimacy of the federal government. And as part of that, what they do is they question the legitimacy of the federal government holding land. Mm-hmm. It's like, what's the government got all this land for anyway? You know, and, and part of the rallying cries is Joker in Nevada who was like grazing his cattle. Um, on public lands without paying the public for use of their cattle for the grazing property. And then he, the land wouldn't have been there for him to graze his cattle on if it wasn't owned by the public anyway. And he's like, well, how should the government own this land? I shouldn't need to pay for it. It's like, dude, it'd be another guy owned it if they didn't own it and he'd be shooting your cattle right now. But <laughs> anyhow, he kind of became like, you know, he kind of became this, this, rallying cry or not like a sort of a renewed rallying cry for how the public shouldn't uh, be able to own land, you know, so this idea that you should, that we should start dumping off public ground in order to open it up for, you know, dumping it off to the States and then the States would be able to whatever, sell it privately or do whatever they're going to do with it. No one's really hashed it out yet, but, that to me right now keeps me up at night. Like I was talking to my brother, there's an area you know near him, you know Gallatin National Forest. It's like, is there honestly a guy who drives by Gallatin National Forest and he's like, oh, I just wish that was privately owned. You know, <laughs> there must be, there must be for whatever, for whatever reason. Yeah, you know, that's a big issue to me right now. Is this like silly idea that we shouldn't have that it's wasteful to have good land open to the public. So I've been talking about this issue a lot too with some people online and sharing different articles about it and whatnot. And, you know, most of the talks right now have been about state governments trying to reclaim control of the public lands from the federal government. And then they're saying that the state government could run it just as well. Um, Now, I get people commenting back saying, well, what's wrong with the state government managing it? Why couldn't the state handle it just as well? I've got a lot of opinions on that, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on why is that a bad idea? Because I, I believe in, like, I'm an incrementalist, or I believe in incrementalism, okay? 
I look at small steps that to me paint a picture for a broader trend. Okay. So when someone says, Oh, we're going to ban a certain kind of magazine for firearms. Okay. Do I really think that they really care that much about that type of magazine? Or are they using this as an inroad? You know, as someone who believes in incrementalism, I know that they're doing things, they're picking battles that they can win in order to whittle away at the larger picture. Mm-hmm. When you have in California, they're like, oh, we're going to ban mountain lion hunting with dogs. And we'll get that passed. Okay, we got that passed. Next year, we're going to just ban, now that we got the dog thing taken care of, we're going to ban hunting mountain lions at all. Okay, we got that taken care of. Next step, ban hunting anything with dogs. Get that taken care of. Like, that's how stuff moves. Okay? And I think it's always important when you care about something to look at what are the private conversations that these people are having. You know, what are the private conversations? When they're sitting around drinking cocktails in private, the money that's behind these kind of movements, what are they really shooting for? I would argue that anti-gun people are shooting for a gun-free country. They feel somehow that the country would be better off if people weren't able to own guns. That's what I think they're really after. Okay? I think that the people in California who are backing these things to ban little aspects of hunting, when they're sitting around having drinks together, I think what they're really after is you shouldn't be able to hunt. Okay? The privatization thing, I think, is coming out of this just like this condemnation and disrespect for federal land management. They're really coming out of a thing where they're like saying, like, everything that Theodore Roosevelt stood for, I stand against. That's what I think they'd like to see. Okay? So, if I'm, I, in my mind, I want to head them off at the pass because I know what they're gunning for. They're gunning for this idea that they want to make a eunuch out of federal land management because they hate the idea that there's some stuff they just can't do, that there's some land they can't graze, there's some places they can't run four wheelers. And just drive them nuts. And the most immediate, quick step in the right direction is to try to, like, the most quick, immediate step to get around regulation is to try to get it put into a different situation, a different management strategy. If I honestly thought that what the real goal here, the real goal was to put things in the state management because the states were going to manage it better and be better ecologists. Then I'd be like, yeah, this is a great move, but I just don't think that's what's going on. Yeah. I think there's a strong risk too of those states, you know, looking at the economic value of that land, if they had control of it too, and then beginning to lease it off or sell it off to the highest bidder as well. Of course, man. That's, that's like, I feel that that's like, if you track down the real money, the real money that's pushing for this, you know, there's people who got a gripe about something that they wanted to do and they're not able to do it. There was an instance where, so when I think what's going on in Nevada, I can't remember the guy's name. He wanted to be a little bit crazy and everybody sort of distanced themselves from him. But there was a thing going on at the same time where there's some BLM land and they found an archaeological site on the BLM land, okay? And so they closed down a road in the canyon because they wanted to do an excavation on this archaeological site, an Indian camp. So they closed down the road because they didn't want to get, to get driven on. And a bunch of guys show up down there on quad runners and bust the gate open and just as a show of force go in there and ride all around on the archaeological site. Jeez. So it's like, like what, what really, like, what really did you care about? You know, but like what keeps that guy up at night? I don't know. I, I just can't get into it. So all like so much of these, these little like flashpoints and stuff. I'm just very suspicious of this whole thing. You know, I'm very suspicious of this whole thing. I'm suspicious of the people who feel like they have something to gain from. Yeah, I think uh, rightfully so. There's a lot to be suspicious about there. But uh, in a hundred years, in a hundred years. Good wildlife habitat, there's probably going to be less of it 
you know, and we're going to be even more glad that we hung on to it. And I don't care, and I don't mean financially glad. Spiritually glad, whatever word you want to put to it. Emotionally, spiritually, whatever. We're going to be very happy that we afforded some level of protection for our hunting and fishing grounds. You know, they're just really, there's some good cases where we're making more, but we're losing a lot more. Yeah. 100% agree with that. Now, I know you've got some time constraints, so I want to try to try to wrap this up here pretty quick. But uh, one last question, I guess. I know you have an upcoming speaking engagement at the North American Deer Summit. And, you know, the North American Deer Summit is being put on by the National Deer Alliance, which really came out of the fact that over recent years, you know, the mule deer populations out west have been dropping for quite a, a number, quite an amount of time now. And whitetail populations in some areas recently are starting to see that trend too. Um, so now we're bringing people together and stakeholders to talk about what's going on here. From your perspective and from your experiences, what do you think is going on here? And is there anything we can do about it? You know, man, like the thing I follow most, I grew up on whitetail. I grew up in Michigan. But um, I, I love mule deer, man. Like, the one animal I'd like to get a big one of someday is a mule deer. If I, if I could, and I've shot, I've hunted a lot of mule deer. It's my favorite thing to hunt is mule deer. And someday I'd like to get just a giant and hang on my wall and be like, there's a giant mule deer. <laughs> um, that's just like what I want. You know, I keep telling people, if I ever get a big mule deer, I just could sell all my hunting equipment and quit hunting and just sit around <laughs> staring at it. Rather than going on, I'll stare at my big mule deer. You know, after I've eaten them. Right. But, it, the picture is so complicated about what's going on with mule deer where it certainly, certainly has a lot to do with habitat loss, sage flats, riparian areas, um, habitat fragmentation. Definitely has a lot to do with that. It might have something to do with having a lot of elk. It might have something to do with having a lot, with having whitetails moving to some areas that we traditionally haven't had whitetails. Um, it might have something to do with climate issues, droughts in certain areas, lack of snowfall. Um, in an immediate sense, you get winters that are too severe. That you get the wrong kind of winter in the wrong kind of area that has mule deer that are already stressed, and you also lose a whole bunch of mule deer. Um, but I think that I would leave it up to the professionals to, to untangle that web of things. But I have a hard time picturing that if you knew the absolute answer, that it wouldn't have something to do with habitat. You know? Because they've always dealt, the species has always dealt with droughts. The species has always dealt with the opposite severe winters. But one thing they haven't dealt with is, is um, fragmented habitat. You know, we used to not understand how much they move, but there's some recent stuff, I'm sure you saw this, where they discovered what wound up being the longest mammal migration in the lower 48. We yeah. traditionally, people used to think it was an animal migration. They realized that the longest animal migration in the lower 48 is a mule deer herd in Wyoming. Yeah that has this mega trek they make through all kinds of obstacles, you know? And they had no idea that that's what these deer were doing. You had individual deer moving, you know, 130 miles, whatever it was, every year on an annual basis. And I think we just don't understand everything that it takes to maintain mule deer. I don't think we understand, like, what they really need and where they're going. Um... And so I'm sure habitat has something to do with it. But, I, but I, I'm not a biologist, man. You know, I'm not a biologist. Like, I draw my information from the same place everybody else does. Yeah. Articles, trying to follow what's going on, trying to stay engaged. I think the guys at the Mule Deer Federation are probably out ahead of it as much as anybody, you know. Yeah, I think it comes right, comes back down to what we've been talking about, all the conservation. It's concerning to me. In a long-term sense, when you look at mule deer, what's funny about mule deer is they think that, you know, they think that mule deer, the, the Valerius Geist, who's kind of a lead ungulate biologist, uh, 
makes a very spirited case that mule deer are, are relatively new on the landscape, that it was a hybridization event between blacktails and whitetails somewhere around the Rocky Mountains that led to mule deer since the Pleistocene. Okay. So it's sort of like a brand new animal on the landscape. Um, and it's fun. It, it's sad to see that they're on their way down, but you look, they haven't, like, they haven't been like that long. Whitetails have been on the ground for millions of years. Probably maybe like, I don't know. I've heard like 3 million years in the Southeast for whitetails. They're survivors, you know? Um, but mule deer, man, it's like mule deer are sort of this little experiment. There's like this little sort of <laughs> evolutionary experiment. And I hope they win. I, I love those things. But uh, whatever it is, fixing the problem, I can tell you one thing. If we decide to fix it, and I hope we do, it's probably going to involve a little bit of inconvenience. Yeah. I, uh comes back to your earlier point about the fact that a lot of these conservation wins are going to require that and that you have to have that yeah. long gotta have that long term view. I know, and I know, and if someone's gonna come and go like, Oh yeah, I mule deer contribute blank to the economy and great, but I'm like, Yeah, but I don't care. I mean that's good. But if they cost the economy money, I still want to keep them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, we are we are way over time, Steve and I apologize. Real quick, I know you've got a new book coming out soon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Excuse me. Um, yeah, so I have two new books coming out. It's a two-volume set, so it's called The Complete Guide to Hunting, Butchering, and Cooking Wild Game. And I've been working on it for a few years with the guys that I work with on the Meat Eater show. Um, we've been working on it together. And then some other folks have been involved in it. There's nothing like there's nothing like it out there, I can tell you that. It came in so long, I was like, it's going to be a 700-page book. So it's coming out in volume one and volume two. Volume one is small game, volume two is big game. And it covers everything from gear, species profiles, hunting strategies, hunting basics, how to find hunting lands, how to scout, how to shoot, how to butcher and scan. It's just like the complete guide to hunting, butchering, and cooking wild game, volumes one and volumes two. Volume one comes out this August. Um, people can go on and pre-order it. You're doing me a huge favor if you go pre-order it. Um, and then volume two will follow a couple months later. Small game volume two will follow soon. And I'll tell you, like, there is nothing like these on the marketplace, man. Um, I got into, I didn't know what I was getting into, but now that I've done it, I mean, I'm, it's just like, I'm really excited about these books. Like they're, 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 they're cool. And, um, and dozens and dozens of very accomplished hunters have all contributed their know-how to make, you know, these books as, as good as they can be. So, that's the thing I'm, that's what I got going on right now, man. Awesome. Um, yeah, and I hope people check it out. I think that people will be pretty excited when they see these books. We'll, uh, we'll make sure to link to that Amazon page so that people can pre-order to it, uh, pre-order it. And then, uh, you know, you've got the podcast going on and your TV show and all those different things. If somebody wants to see all the different things you have going on right now online, where can they go? Yeah, just go to the, like, themeateater.com. So not, it's so the, MeatEater.com, and there you'll find links to the Meat Eater podcast. You'll find links. Um, you can always check out the show on Sportsman Channel. Um, we've been on Sportsman Channel for years. Hopefully, we'll stay there for years. Um, if not, go to MeatEater.vhx.tv, and you can stream and download Meat Eater episodes. But you'll also find all that by going to TheMeatEater.com. And I'm on Twitter at Stephen Ranella. But the best place is just to hit the website, TheMeatEater.com, or check us out on Facebook. Um, Steve Rennell, me, you'll find it on Facebook. And there you'll see all the whole, you know, all the all the all the inner workings and all the outputtings of, of our organization. So, but thank you for having me on, man. It was, it was a good conversation. It's something I like to talk about and something I care about a great deal. So I, I appreciate a chance to discuss this stuff with you. Absolutely, it's been uh, it's been great chatting. And for everyone listening, you know, take Stephen up on what he just said there. Check out the website. Check out his books. He has three really good books out there right now. His show is incredible. The podcast is one of the best out there. So be sure to visit uh, the show notes page for this podcast. We'll link to all that stuff. And uh, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Hey man, thanks for having me on. All right. Well, that is going to do it for us today on the Wired to Hunt podcast. And that was a pretty interesting conversation, wasn't it? 
That said, for the show notes I mentioned just a second ago, visit wiredtohunt.com slash episode 54. We'll have links to all the things that Stephen mentioned. And as always, if you've been enjoying the show, please take a quick few seconds to leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It's a huge help, so thank you. Speaking of thanks, as always, we'd also like to thank our partners who helped make the Wired Hunt podcast possible. So big thank you to Sick Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you to all of you listening in today. If you're new to the show, welcome. And if you're a longtime listener, thanks for sticking with us. I hope this episode inspired you to think just a little bit more about our responsibility as conservationists. And maybe it's even got you thinking about ways you might be able to make a personal difference. I know it certainly got me thinking about that. So with all that said, have a great week, enjoy the great outdoors, and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. I've been telling you guys about Land.com to help you find a place to call your own and do all the hunting and fishing and hanging with the family that you want. While owning your own piece of land is something that can generate memories, I can speak to this personally because my family, we own a couple small, beautiful little backcountry parcels. It can also generate income in both the near and long term, like starting a rental business slash family compound that can benefit both this and future generations. Check out the hundreds of thousands of rural listings from across America. Enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space.